Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Shoshana Zuboff. She's a Charles Edward Wilson Professor Emerita at Harvard Business School and a former faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School. This episode concludes our season on post-truth. We've learned so much about how truth decay endangers our language, our national security, and our very democracy. Today, we take a deeper dive into our society's immersion in digital technology and in what way things are not what they seem. In Zuboff's latest book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power, she reveals a world in which users of technology are not customers or employees, and not even products, but raw material for new procedures of manufacturing and sales that define a new economic order, a surveillance economy. We talk about how surveillance capitalism leads to an instrumentarian society, which is a fundamentally undemocratic world where our data is exploited and manipulated for profit by some of the world's biggest companies. Ultimately, the surveillance capitalists discovered that the most predictive data come from actually intervening in your action and learning how to use all of this knowledge about you to come back to you with triggers and subliminal cues that can tune and herd your behavior in a way that optimizes their predictions. Instrumentarian power aggregates our behavior patterns, like when we click on an ad on Facebook or buy something online, and directs us toward their desired outcomes. This power is continuously exerted through our tech infrastructure with a goal to make society a place to be modified and controlled. We discuss why and how humans are central for our democracy. As Zubov says, let there be a digital future, but let it be a human future first. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mila. It is a great pleasure to be here with you and our listeners today. Let's start with the basics. What is surveillance capitalism? Surveillance capitalism is, let's call it the dominant economic logic at this moment. It is the way in which capitalism is evolving in this digital era that makes it problematic and puts the word surveillance in this phrase. Capitalism has evolved over the centuries. Essentially, with this kind of mechanism, it claims things that live outside the market dynamic, and it brings them into the marketplace to turn them into things that can be sold and purchased, things we call commodities. So it takes things that never were commodities and never were imagined as commodities and turns them into commodities so that it can make money on them. So famously, for example, industrial capitalism claimed nature for the marketplace. So it took things that were meadows and forests and rivers and turned them into 
real estate and land and power sources. So the breakthrough that created surveillance capitalism was the realization that private human experience was an entirely virgin domain, a virgin territory, something that was completely undefended because no one had ever claimed it for the marketplace. So what does it mean exactly that our human experiences have become a commodity? How does it work? Private human experience could be translated into data, behavioral data, that those data could be analyzed and they could be turned into commodities that could be sold and purchased. Let's say you're walking down the street and this is a private human experience. And let's say you're smiling, which is also a private human experience. Well, there are cameras and sensors now that take your face without your knowledge. Therefore, it's a unilateral action that by definition cannot be based on your consent. Now, taking something without the other person's knowledge or consent, any eight-year-old would tell you that that is stealing. So the whole logic of surveillance capitalism begins with this, what I refer to as the original sin of theft, of stealing. So you're back on the street, you're smiling. Your face is taken along with your smile and all the little muscles in your face that are creating the specific dynamics of your facial gesture at that moment. Now, by taking your face with these sensors and cameras, your face is immediately translated into data. In this case, the behavior of the muscles in your face. Those data are fed into complex systems of supply chains that are picking up experience and rendering it as data from all kinds of different domains, your car, your home, your walk on the street, your telephone call, your location, et cetera, et cetera. So these supply chains are now complex sets of pipes, ecosystems, they're fed through your phone, they're fed through your laptop, every internet enabled interface. These data now flow into the new factories. What are these factories? They're what people call artificial intelligence, machine learning. What happens in the factory though, is what has always happened in a factory, which is factory makes products. What kinds of products does this new factory make? Well, it's a computational factory. It makes a computational product, specifically a prediction of your behavior. Now that we know what it means for our experiences to be a commodity, what happens to all that knowledge about us? How does it all get monetized? So everyone has heard of online targeted advertising. And I think many people understand that online targeted advertising markets are what have created the trillion dollar market capitalization of a company like Google, which was the originator of surveillance capitalism and the nearly trillion dollar market capitalization of Facebook, which is also a major mover as a surveillance capitalist. So these online advertising markets, when you just zoom out a little bit, 
what you can see is that these are markets that are trading in human futures. Very specifically, the first globally successful computational product to predict human behavior is what Google called the click-through rate. What is a click-through rate? It is simply a computational fragment that predicts a fragment of your future behavior, namely what kind of ad you are likely to click on and if you are likely to click through to the website behind that ad. That's the click-through rate. That's a prediction of your behavior. And so there is prima facie evidence here that these human futures markets are hugely lucrative because they have created these information empires in record time. But it's also worthwhile to note that while this logic of surveillance capitalism began at Google, migrated to Facebook, became the default economic logic within the wider tech sector, neither these markets nor the economic logic behind them is any longer confined to the tech sector. We now see that surveillance capitalism has spread through what people think of as the normal economy. The perfect example is how the Ford Motor Company has been transformed by surveillance capitalism from a car manufacturing company to a data company. In pursuit of price earnings ratios of the likes of Google and Facebook, Ford decided that it would stream data from the millions of people who drive Ford vehicles and then combine it with the data that they have from Ford Credit. In sum, instead of designing a car that everyone wants to buy, Ford is now in the business of transportation operating systems. This is how we see surveillance capitalism moving through every sector, products and services, insurance, real estate, finance, education, health, literally just about every sector that you can think of is moving toward this economic logic as a way of claiming these margins that come from what I call the surveillance dividend. So instead of working to figure out what are the products and service that people and society really need today, they're working to figure out how do we commodify personal experience, turn it into data and make money on that because every kind of business wants to know what their users or customers or clients are likely to do next. This has become a scourge on our economy. And as we talk about it, we can explore the ways in which this has also been revealed to be a profoundly anti-democratic economic logic that is on a collision course with democracy and certainly market democracy as we have known it. Well, it's astonishing the rate at which this transformation has happened. Let's go straight to how this is a threat to democracy. You talk about an instrumentarian society and how it comes directly from the mining of our personal behavior and our preferences that we, even with our consent, submit to Google or Facebook, and also, of course, when it is stolen from us in the public sphere. So what does it mean to have instrumentarian power? And how does that translate to being 
profoundly anti-democratic? Well, thank you for asking the most important question (laughs) right away, because if our listeners can understand instrumentarian power, so much of what is going down in our world today is going to be easier to grasp, and it's going to inspire, I think, a lot more of us to mobilize and understand exactly what is at stake for our future. I want folks to know that what we're talking about here is an economic logic. An economic logic has its own internal dynamics, its own iron laws, if you will, and produces its own economic imperatives. A lot of what I've done is to ask myself the question, what are the competitive dynamics of these human futures markets? What does it mean to compete in predictions of our future behavior? Because what surveillance capitalists are selling is they're selling certainty. Everybody wants certainty. And you can go as far back in human history as you can possibly reach. So in order to do this, they need to have great predictions. And in order to have great predictions, it turns out that three things are really necessary. Number one, you're going to feed an AI and you want great predictions to come out. Well, you need a lot of data. So the first thing is economies of scale. We need those supply chains full. We need them coming from every direction and every domain. Number two, turns out that scale, volume is essential, but it's not the whole story. We also need varieties of data. You know, this began with search and browsing online, and then it went into... uh, social connection online and social media and the Facebook milieu. But actually now we have these supply chains that are tapping into every conceivable kind of data, whether it's coming from your car, coming from your home, you're walking around the world with this uh, little computer tucked in your pocket, you have apps and the apps are picking up all kinds of personal information about you, information that you never intended to disclose and don't even know that you are disclosing. So now we have something called scope, varieties of data. So we have economies of scale and we have economies of scope. And when it comes to scope, we've seen this uh, almost demonic, audacious drive over the last decade where literally it seems like there is nothing left untouched. We even have Facebook writing about its experiments to turn human brain waves into speech, into words that can be automatically translated and rendered and and made available as data. So there is actually no sanctuary left when it comes to private experience in the race for economies of scope. Ultimately, it turns out that predictions of future behavior are most accurate when surveillance capitalists actively intervene in people's behavior based on what they know from our past actions They can come back to us and coax our behavior in a way that optimizes their predictions about what we are going to do next. So a lot of folks have heard about Cambridge Analytica. 
the techniques that we saw being utilized are actually the techniques that were invented inside surveillance capitalism as they learned how to tune and herd people's behavior. So for example, this is the use of subliminal cues, the manipulation of social comparison dynamics, using psychological knowledge about you in order to compose triggers that are aimed specifically at your interests or your weaknesses, your fears, your obsessions, the things that have been pulled out from their analyses, from the wealth of personal information that they now have about you as points of vulnerability that may trigger attitude changes or even behavioral changes. And they've also learned how to manipulate rewards and punishments in real time, including using gamification structures to drive your behavior in specific directions. Remember the augmented reality game Pokemon Go? The game that uses GPS to locate, capture, and train virtual creatures which appear as if they are in the player's real-world location? Well, in the book, we learn that this game was incubated at Google for many years by the same leadership as Google Earth. So the same people who are responsible for filming our streets and houses are also the people who made us play Pokemon Go. Zuboff explains it really was not a game. It was hidden surveillance at its best. What Pokemon Go was, was a living, breathing human futures market. What they were doing was using the gamification of the Pokemon Go game as people were searching for creatures and you know getting up the ladder of rewards and so forth to drive people toward establishments, Starbucks, McDonald's, Joe's Pizzeria, that were already in agreement to pay for footfall. So footfall in a real life establishment, your real feet on your real legs, on your real body, in a place where you're gonna spend money, that's the precise equivalent in the physical world to click-through rate in the online world. Click-through, you're walking with your fingers. Footfall, you're walking with your body, but it's the same thing. You're going to a place where they want you to go, where they are predicting that you will go, and you're spending money. And so Pokemon Go was learning how to herd people through the city to the places where these folks are going to pay Pokemon Go, and that's how the whole game was monetized. So now we have economies of action. What does this mean? This means that we have gone through an arc. In engineering, this is called the arc from monitoring to actuation, where we now have so much knowledge about a system that we can use that knowledge to remote control that system. Now we translate that process from engineering systems of machines to human systems of individual, group, and population behavior. So now what we have is surveillance capitalists amassing enough information about individuals, groups, and societies 
to be able to use that information to come back into the system and achieve these economies of action to actually modify our behavior in the direction of their preferred outcomes that optimize their revenues. So this is now an extraordinary new form of market-based power. It works through the digital milieu to modify our behavior in the ways that advantage the surveillance capitalists and their business customers. Hey everyone, I wanted to share some info about this week's sponsor, Jordan Harbinger. He's an independent journalist who takes you inside the minds of the world's most interesting, most successful, or most newsworthy people. Similar to what we do every week on Future Hindsight, Jordan's podcast gives meaningful, fun, life-changing insights with a practical edge to his listeners every episode, every day. You might find him learning communication tips and tricks with an FBI hostage negotiator one day and uncovering the secrets of a lost city in the jungle the next. Jordan wants you to become a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a much deeper understanding of how the world works and make sense of what's really happening. Maybe you can see some similarities with my mission. Anyways, we really enjoy the show and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. It might sound like we all know this already, but most of us really haven't thought through the logical end game of this type of influence and control over our behavior. When people talk about these forms of digital control, they are often thrown back onto older models of power. And so we hear phrases like digital totalitarianism, digital authoritarianism. My argument is that old language actually prevents us from grasping what is new, unprecedented, and very dangerous about this new form of power. What we have here is what I call instrumentarian power. Instrumentarian because it works through the instrumentation of the digital milieu. These are forces that work through the medium of the digital, and part of what makes them so pernicious, so dangerous, is the very way that they're camouflaged, because they're likely to come offering us things that come under that huge catch-all convenience. They're likely to come offering us a way to do something that actually makes our lives easier. And so they come disguised as our friend. And this makes them very difficult to discern. But in fact, they are not our friends because they are learning how to control social behavior without our knowledge, without our consent, and therefore in ways that take direct aim at human autonomy, at human agency, at the very most elemental experiences without which a democratic society is impossible to imagine. Where you see these instrumentarian ambitions most eloquently expressed, Mila, 
are in discussions about the so-called smart city. Now, Google has been one of the most aggressive purveyors of the smart city paradigm. But whenever you hear the word smart, you have to ask yourself three questions. Number one, who has the knowledge? Who is smart? Number two, who has the authority to decide who gets the knowledge, to decide who gets to be smart? And number three, who has the power to decide who has the authority to determine who gets to be smart? In the Google version of the smart city, it is Google who knows. And when you read Google's descriptions of its ambitions for the smart city, such as the proposals that it made to the city of Toronto over the past couple of years in order to take over the Toronto waterfront and create a, quote, smart city that would be operated by something called sidewalk labs, it became very clear that this so-called smart city was going to be a place that they called in their own language, long after I developed the terminology of instrumentarian power, but they call it the instrumented city. Everything is internet enabled. Everything is an interface to access all behavior, all experience, translate it into data and have it flowing to sidewalk labs and their AI. They even write about the idea that if you live in the zone and you opt out of sharing your data, you will not be able to take advantage of the services in this zone. You won't be able to use the transportation services or you won't be able to use the security services. So here we have a perfect example of using rewards and punishments in real time in order to get people to behave in the way they want for their own market advantage. Now, let's come back to the subject of democracy. The great punchline here, Mila, as I'm sure you know, is that just a couple of weeks ago, Sidewalk Labs withdrew from Toronto. And it withdrew after long years of very, very detailed proposals. At the beginning, Sidewalk Labs believed that it was just going to be a slam dunk. It could make its proposals, it could extract its demands, which by the way, include setting aside municipal law so that sidewalk labs can impose the policies that it sees fit. This is part of the long game of surveillance capitalism and how it brings us back to the discussion of democracy. What instrumentarian power is at its foundations is a political project intended to substitute computational governance for democratic governance. So in the instrumentarian view, the idea was we no longer need laws, we no longer need regulations, we simply need AI. For example, if we decide that the decibel levels in a part of the city should not go above a certain sound point, we don't have to have 
policies and laws and regulations to govern that. We don't need neighbors coming together in meetings to talk about their different points of view and debate. Instead, these decibel levels are decided through algorithmic computation, and then the algorithm monitors the sound in that part of the city, and parameters are set. And of course, the devices are blanketing every place in the city so that when a decibel level exceeds the algorithmic parameter, there are automated systems that simply loop back to those local devices and they can simply shut down remotely whatever it may be that is driving the decibel level above the standard. So here we have um, automated governance, computational governance, replacing municipal governance, which is democratic governance, and all the inputs that come from the rich life of people living together in a city. So the story of Toronto becomes such an interesting story because they were finally going to achieve what has been a longstanding Google objective of having a zone where they could exercise computational governance and show the world how much more effective and efficient that is, including how lucrative it is. Instead, what happened in Toronto was a grassroots movement. Neighbors, citizens, community groups, some elected officials and administrative officials coming together to say our city must remain a democratic city. It is to be governed by the people in the beautiful, slow, messy, marvelous, hard-won, cherished processes that we call democracy. We celebrate the messiness because that is what makes democracy human and enduring. And it was a grassroots movement that gathered so many people to it that finally had sidewalk labs coming to the conclusion that they were not going to be able to impose this project at the scope that they had hoped, and they withdrew. As we've seen in this example of who is smart and who has the power to decide who gets to be smart, Surveillance capitalists have succeeded in creating an inequality of knowledge which creates an asymmetry of power in our society. Surveillance capitalists have been able to amass so much knowledge about us that it has actually created a new form of inequality. I call it epistemic inequality, an inequality of knowledge. It's expressed in the difference between what I can know and what can be known about me. So now we have these huge asymmetries of knowledge, which represents more of a feudal, ancient pattern, not a futuristic, modern democratic pattern. And with these asymmetries of knowledge come huge asymmetries of power. The ability to use all of this knowledge about us now to feedback in that process of from monitoring to actuation, to actually experiment with, hone, and perfect ways to influence 
shape, control, and ultimately modify the behavior of individuals, of groups, of cities, of societies in ways that favor the market outcomes of surveillance capitalists and their customers. This is a direct assault on autonomy from above, and we have been slow to recognize it because it comes camouflage as a sheep, but actually with the teeth and power of a wolf. That is what we are up against today in our society. And why this is such an important fight, an instrumentarian future is by definition not a democratic future. This is a problem that concerns us for our own sake, for the sake of our children, for the sake of their children. This is a uniquely 21st century fight, and it's going to require all of us to participate. Yes, indeed. What are two things that I could do as an everyday person to wrest my own future tense back from surveillance capitalists? How would we do it? Well, look, what we do as individuals is important, but I just want to say that our thinking is also a form of action. <laughs> so I just yes. want to alert, yes, alert I agree. everybody that you know, there is a mental revolution here, and that is the realization that privacy is not private. Because as individuals, what we've been doing is thinking, well, I'm just going to make this private calculation, this private trade-off. I'm going to give them a little bit of data. And that's not great, but what I'm getting back is is so useful or convenient, you know, that I feel like it's it's going to be okay. It's worth it. Every time we put a photo on Facebook, it's being scraped into data sets that are used to train facial recognition systems. And therefore, every time we make one of these private calculations, we're contributing to the growth and deployment of instrumentarian power. The second thing about privacy not being private is that we think that the companies are simply amassing information based on the trade-offs we know that we've made. In fact, when we go back to the leaked Facebook document about its AI hub, and we learn that its AI is ingesting trillions of data points every day, it turns out that only a tiny fraction of those data points are actually drawn from what we know we gave. Most of those data are drawn from what they took without our knowing. The ergo, the surveillance in surveillance capitalism. Right. There's many, many times more taking from us than there is our knowingly giving up. So having said that, so many of us have become dependent upon the digital milieu for basic daily activities and some of the most basic things that we need to do for social participation, for living an effective life, force us to march through surveillance capitalism supply chains, and we have no alternative. And that is an intolerable situation for democratic citizens to be in, and we have to change it. In the meantime, 
there are still lots of things that we do that perhaps are not necessary, that are discretionary. And that's where I think we can begin to exercise some judgment. So number one, you can um, enlist a range of applications that are out there that can help you make your digital interactions more private. You know, they can block tracking, they can scramble your location. There's a lot of things that you can do to make your behavior less accessible, in some cases inaccessible. The second thing is, because of the pandemic, a lot of us have been forced to be remote when we don't want to be. What being forced into the remote, I think, is teaching a lot of us is not that, oh, the remote is so great, let's only do remote, <laughs> but just the opposite. Like, the remote sucks. Yes, 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 <laughs> I, want I agree. Hug. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want a hug. I want us to be here together. I want us to be holding hands. I want us to be, you know, clinking glasses. I want us to be laughing together and crying together when that is what is called for. So I think that while some of the companies are saying, oh, hey, remote is here to stay, let us remember folks that their economic imperatives drive them to expand supply chains and get volumes of data coming into those supply chains. So remote for them is business as usual, only better. So of course they're gonna say, hey, yeah, let's do remote forever. But that is not, as far as I can tell, what the vast majority of people are taking away from this. Do we want remote to replace all these other kinds of activities that we're forced to be virtual in right now? No, we wanna to be together in our city, in our community, in our families, with our friends, and we wanna be outside. The individual lessons I think are be in touch with love, be in touch with uh, hugging a tree, get off the damn device whenever you can, and understand that when they tell you you shouldn't worry about all of this stuff if you've got nothing to hide, realize that that is a well-honed piece of gaslighting. If you have nothing to hide, then you are nothing because everything that makes us who we are, our identities, our values, our fantasies, our visions, our promises, our anticipations of the future, our emotions and our creativity, our thoughts and our feelings is honed within us, within the private sanctuary of our own hearts and minds. And if that is exposed, it is transformed by transparency into something far more arid, something far more frozen, something that no longer has the spark of the unpredictable, which is the essence of creativity, the miracle of human action. We want to preserve and keep that inner sanctum as the crucible of your own creative individual life that is essential for your health, your empowerment, and all the things that you will learn and want to pass on to your children 
in wisdom and in the knowledge that democracy can be safe for another generation. That's very well put and so eloquent. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and sharing your wisdom with us. I'm totally awed. Thank you, Mila. <laughs> it's, it's been a pleasure. All season, we've been hearing about the ways the truth is obscured and how this hurts our society. And here is something much more dangerous, something that makes issues of fake news seem like a distraction that we can scarcely wrap our heads around. The example of the smart city in Toronto really shows what instrumentarian power can do in pursuing an instrumentarian society where we can only live in a grid of constant surveillance and our behaviors are controlled remotely. Though it's difficult to pry ourselves away from the many conveniences of online life, especially during this time of COVID, we do have the power to reduce the collection of our data, whether it's stolen or we consent to give it, and we can stand up for democracy. In the absence of democracy, there is no freedom. We would be living in a dystopian world worthy of science fiction. Next week, our guests are Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan, professors at Columbia University who co-authored Sexual Citizens, a landmark study of sex, power, and assault on campus, which emerged out of research about young people's college lives and how sex fit into them. The real question we ask is, why have we failed? How is it possible that these young people who are so accomplished in so many ways and have learned so much and mastered so many other vitally important lessons, not been taught to recognize their own sexual autonomy or respect other people's? We talk about sexual assault prevention on campus, structural power imbalances, comprehensive sexuality education, and what we owe each other as citizens. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumpu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.